following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. Uh, we're so glad to be together. It's a good day to be together worshiping our Lord around His Word. Um, if you're visiting with us, welcome. We're so glad to be worshiping together, or at least just sitting in and seeing what's going on. Um, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 32 to start off today. Be a couple other places, but we in Deuteronomy 32. As we're doing that, I think it's right for us to take a moment as a congregation to recognize the weight specifically of last week's sermon on the Lord's Supper. Um, it was a lot of information, a lot of stuff going on, and it's been a very full week for all of us. Lots of conversations, lots of meetings, conference calls, explanation, text, etc. And we know this will continue, and we want this to continue. It's right for us to do this together. And we know that our teaching on the Lord's Supper has caused many of you to sit up and take notice and to see what Scripture has to say about communion. Again, this is a good thing. This means we're going about the Scripture seriously, and we want to take these things seriously and to dig into His Word. But we also know that this is a heavy matter to weigh through. We understand that, and that it will take time to study, to think, to talk, and to understand these things as we move forward. So I just want to take a minute and say thank you for the texts and the calls, um, the emails, the conversations, and the meetings that we've already had. Um, these things that we're doing and talking about, and the fact that you're willing to come and talk to us about it, means that you care about the body of Christ means that you care about what the scriptures say about your life. means that you are committed to finding out what they have to say and how we practice. This is good. And so I want to commend you uh, for, for bringing those things together and for talking amongst yourselves and thinking it through and going to the scriptures. They're, these things declare your willingness to engage and be part of the body and to hear from the scriptures on these practical issues for the church. Our desire is to continue to work through wading through all of this, both on an individual basis, so that means bring on the conversations, the emails, texts. I mean, we're glad to meet up and talk. We want to do that. But we also desire to continue wading through this on a corporate level as well. We realize that it's good for us to continue to teach on this, to make sure we have a thorough understanding and we can talk together, a conversation. We made that, so what we're doing is we're actually, we, the elders decided actually this week, he said we need to add another opportunity for us to see this together and work at it. So we are going to add an extra course seminar to our agenda with the sole purpose to express how this understand, uh, understanding is tied together, the gospel and its ramifications for church life. We will specifically gather so that the body can ask questions, so that we work through this understanding of the Lord's Supper together. So on March 1st, that's a Sunday night, we will gather together to continue to teach and discuss the Lord's Supper and who we are as a body of Christ. Now, we invite everyone, this is not a members meeting, we invite everyone to come and take part in this teaching, discussion, what's going on. We want to diligently, though, I would, I would just, if I can kind of put this back for a moment, diligently consider what we've been talking about already. It may mean that you need to go back and listen to some of the sermons on baptism and church membership and the keys of the kingdom because those things will all help us understand how this is being put together and why we'd arrive at this place at this time. So I would encourage you to go back into those things as well as we talk in this whole thing together. 
So we ask you to do your best to come and learn and, and, and work together with us on March 1st so we can move forward together in this. I also briefly want to say to members who are parents who have professing Christian young people in your home, we will be coming to you. We will be talking to you, starting to work through the process of what it looks like to have true Christians in all, in all the ways that's true as a part of the body of Christ. To be honest, this is new for us. This is not something we've done, so please, we ask you to pray for us and that we ask that you be patient as we do our best to maintain faithfulness to Christ and to his text as we continue to work out what it means for us to lead his church. We know that we must continually submit ourselves to his word, and we want to. We want to do that, and we need one another to pray as we work through this together. And we supernaturally ask God to change, we ask God to supernaturally change us so that it's no longer our will, but his would be done. The elders want that so much. And I know that we as a body, as Christian believers, want that very thing. I love you guys. And I, I don't get, I mean, I guess I could say it every week, but it's, it's hard. I don't get to see each of you and say this, but I, I love you. And we do as, as, as elders as well. And we are still learning what it means to pastor well, uh, how to go about this, the, the techniques even, and how we implement and what things go on. So we ask in, for your patience and we thank you for already being patient and for asking the questions, for listening, and for working alongside of us as we go through this process. So thank you. Let's go ahead and take a look at Deuteronomy 32. Um, we'll just read verse 4 this morning, and then we'll pray. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you together and uh, we come to sit under the preaching of your word because we want to hear from you. Please use your word to encourage our hearts, to call us to action, uh, to cause us to rest completely in your finished work on the cross. We desire to hear you speak through your word and we desire to obey. And so we ask, Lord, please give us faith as it's much easier to look around and live for ourselves in a world of comfort and material, stuff that we can see so easily. So we ask that you give us faith. Help us to see with eyes of faith. We thank you for your great love and your patience and gentleness with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we look at our passage here in Deuteronomy 32, we recognize that Moses is actually describing God in these verses. He's talking about him. He calls him a rock, a stronghold, probably a protector. He says that his work is perfect. But it's the next phrase that I want us to hear loud and clear. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. We know this to be true in Christian doctrine. Our Lord is a God of justice. We've talked about it many times, even when we referenced Exodus 34 all these different things about who God is, but in the midst of his loving kindness and grace, it says he will by no means clear the guilty. Why? Because he is just. He cannot sweep sin under the rug. The Psalms are filled with the cries of the afflicted. 
and the oppressed, that God would be just and give the sinners their due judgment. You know them as imprecatory psalms or praises and asking God to do those things, to, to, to visit those ones that are evil and wicked and have them be judged. We also see uh, that God's holy, righteous character is such that every wicked action must have a response because he's just, just. And justice will be and must be served because of his character. We also know that God's people are called to live in a just way. Like it's not just God the one that's just. He calls his people now to live in a just way, in a way that reflects the character of our God. This assumes, though, if we're honest, it means that there is a right way to live or a just way for us to live. For instance, his people are to show no partiality to the rich, to the poor, black or white, male or female. There's to be no partiality. We, we work through this in James, understanding that there's no partiality. There should be justice, both for the native in Israel and also the sojourner. It's not a, an ethnic thing. It's a human thing that there ought to be justice for the human, in a sense, a human race. Furthermore, the Bible is rich with language that calls for the protection and looking out of the widow and the fatherless and the oppressed. The law of God and especially the prophets call out God's people to live in a way that proclaims justice. That when they look upon this, this nation, they see that justice matters to them by caring for those who are afflicted, weak, and poor. If you look in the prophets, again, doom and glooming seemingly like a lot of poetry and lofty language, what you start to get down to in many of the prophets, you realize that they're famous for talking about injustice in Israel and Judah, that the people are not acting justly. The nation was constantly running away from God under wicked kings. They're doing pagan practices that led them to be selfish, greedy, and in a bad way, opportunistic to take advantage of others. In Jeremiah 22, the Lord says this to his people. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. That's Jeremiah 22. Isaiah 1, right from the beginning of Isaiah's book, in verse 17, the Lord says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to who? To the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It even gets picked up in wisdom literature. Even as we get to the, uh, through the Psalms and even in the Proverbs, we think of Proverbs 31 usually as the Proverbs 31 woman, a virtuous, wise woman. But if you, if you go back and look, you realize that that description doesn't begin until verse 10. Actually, in 2 through 9, what's going on is there is a queen mother who is going to speak to her son, Lemuel, and teach him a godly, wise way how to reign and how to take care of the people. She says these two things at the end to him. Open your mouth for the mute, those that can't say anything. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. God has a posture to the poor and needy and afflicted, the innocent and the fatherless. He calls his people to care for them and to provide justice when no one else is willing to do so. Now today, we're taking a whole day to set aside out of our normal flow of what we would normally do on a Sunday morning to highlight life day. That's, we're calling this a life day. 
That doesn't mean that all the other Sundays we don't believe in life, obviously. But we think it's important enough that we would take a stand and say, we are with those that say life is important. And as we get through it, you'll see why we say that. We're not just the moral majority and a good Christian club of goodwill, and we, we're just, that's our, our political stance. It is because it is rooted in understanding the character of God. It's a Sunday where we'll take special time to highlight the current crisis here in our own backyard and across the nation, and where we willingly stand with other Christians around the world and throughout history that life is given by God and it's sacred. In every season, in every age, life is something that is given and sustained by God himself. We know that it was given by God at the dawn of creation in Adam and Eve. Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man. And he does. He does the work. But it's not only at creation that he is in charge of this process, as though he's, the, he's not the giant clockwinder and then just lets it all go. We know that because the process that we know of as conception is not just in our hands. Uh, we understand the pain and the struggle of not being able to conceive as well. We do know that. But the Bible gives us a reason here. We may not understand this, but it is God who opens and closes the womb. In Genesis 20, 18, it is God who closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech. In Genesis 25, Isaac prays for his barren wife and asks the Lord to help her conceive. And the Lord answers him and does. In the book of Ruth, seemingly a place that would be strange to find this, the author literally says, and the Lord gave her conception. At creation, life was given by God himself, obviously. But let's challenge that for a minute. Today, as life is given, it is given by God himself. He alone is creator, not us. We are part of his design and plan and working these things out. But it is God who opens and closes the womb. All these things show us the wonder of creation and life and point to an almighty creator who is in charge of all of this. But it's sacred not only because it's his idea, or not only because it was his invention and he continues to make life, but also because of the nature of this creation that we're talking about. You see, mankind is made in the image of God. Despite what much of our culture will tell us, plants, animals, rocks, ecosystems, all these things are wonderful, but none of them are made in the image of God. None of them are. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. At the pinnacle of his creation, God makes human beings the crown of his work and he gives them rule over the earth as vice regents under God with the task to have dominion over this whole thing. Those who are literally not like anyone else, they alone are made in the image of God. And this image idea wasn't just a one-time event. You know, it wasn't just with Adam and Eve in that creation act. We know that Adam and Eve actually perpetuate this image of God race, this sacred race. Listen to Genesis 5, 1 through 3, which is the first human genealogy, okay? It's 
crazy. This is how it would start. Because when you and I read genealogies, we're like, oh, yeah, where's the end of this? Okay, I'll, I'll pick up. This is how he starts this thing, though. The first one. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Okay. No. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. This is a lot of extra stuff in genealogy, right? Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. This is not an accident. We're understanding now that Adam's offspring are made in the image of God. At the outset of the first human genealogy, like we said, we have the clear teaching that this line, this human line, carries the image of God, just as their father Adam was made in the image of God. We learn very quickly, though, in the book of Genesis that life is very important and there's a high value on it. The first human murderer, Cain, what happens? He's cursed for striking his brother. But we really get a clear picture once the flood is over and Noah exits the ark and God talks to him. God tells Noah this, after all this violence, all this bloodshed, all of the stuff that had happened, he says this, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In case there are any questions about this, whether or not Genesis 5 was actually telling us that now the perpetuated race is actually the image of God, it's very clear even here as Noah is speaking this, or God is speaking to Noah here in Genesis 9. In case we were wondering, we are told that killing another man requires a reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? He tells us, for God made man in his own image. It's important enough that once God's people are rescued, and established as his covenant people after they leave Egypt and they're established as national Israel, he has Moses write 10 truths on a tablet, 10 commandments. And this is so important that this makes the cut. So important, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Throughout the Old Testament, we watch and understand more and more that God loves life and hates the practice of killing innocent people. In Proverbs 6.16, we learn that this is one of the things that God hates. Listen as I read just two verses. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. The Lord hates the shedding of innocent blood. Murder strikes against the very thing that bears the image of God in the universe, mankind. I can remember getting dropped off after school of my bus. I think it was like in junior high. Um, normal day, came home, dropped my backpack at the, at, the, at the kitchen table, went to grab a snack. And usually around that time, like the next thing to do is homework and that kind of stuff. It wasn't in any sports seasons at that time. And my mom usually is there to greet me and, and talk, and the television is never on. And I didn't know where she was, and I heard a television on. And she heard that I was home, and she said, hey, Chris and, and AJ, you need to come in here and see this. So we go in, and there we are watching the television, um, the news coverage of the Columbine High School shooting in April 1999. Some of you don't remember that. Some of you do remember that. Twelve students were murdered, one teacher, and then both of the gunmen took their own lives. I, I, 
It was the deadliest school shooting in the United States history. Nothing had ever been like that before. Unfortunately, we feel it's more commonplace now. But nothing like that had ever taken place. And it was a tragedy. It was murder. And everyone was reeling from this terrible atrocity that happened to these students at Columbine High School. Fast forward a little bit. In my junior year of high school, I was sitting in government class, and a teacher poked their head in and said, you need to stop the class, and everyone needs to come down to study hall. So we did. We all gathered around an old tube television on one of those high stands, you know, and we're sitting there and watching this, and we're watching the replay over and over again of the two different planes strike the World Trade Center and bring the towers down and attack claiming 2,977 victims. It was murder. And the entire nation was poised to find justice at any cost. We understood that this was an act both of terror, but it was murderous. These were famous murders, of course, these two that I just have talked about. In my formative years, and I could feel the weight and the pain of the nation and the outrage of the injustice of those who took the life of the innocent. These died cowards' deaths, suicide, taking many with them. And we all wanted justice to be served. Now, many of you are a little older than I am, and within your own history, you can remember times like this as well. Different events where this struck, whether it's close to home or you remember watching the news. Perhaps it was the genocide and the ethnic cleansing throughout the continent of Africa. Or perhaps it was the Tiananmen Square massacre. Or perhaps we can all probably, just because we know about it so much, we can relate to the feelings that are engendered by the mass murder of over six million Jews within a four-year period in the Holocaust. Each of these heart-wrenching, murderous acts are evil. Each of them call for justice to be served. Each of them ought to bring a people to action. And guess what? They did. This was a wake-up call in so many ways for so many people. These events have been broadcasted and rebroadcasted and taught in our schools, and they have made an indelible mark on our society to, point, to the point that we have taken steps to prevent these kind of things from happening again. I mean, whole countries and advocate groups and people of goodwill have worked diligently to find justice for these victims and for their families. There is an attempt at getting justice for these. But today, we need to talk about a greater crisis, a far larger on a scale of magnitude, an ongoing crisis that is taking place around the world and on our own shores, here in our country, here in our state, here in our own cities that we live in. But this crisis isn't broadcast on the nightly news, and it certainly isn't taught in our schools. It's not talked about but you can be sure that it is making an indelible mark on our society. I am talking about the 61 million unborn children that have been killed through abortion. January 22nd marked the 47th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and since that time, over 61 million children have been killed through abortion. And that's the conservative number. And I can tell you why. First of all, not all abortions are reported. Second, not all states report abortions. So these are the ones, in a sense, that we only know. 
probably even a conservative guess is still that it's probably closer to 70 million unborn who are killed through abortion. Just since Roe v. Wade in our country. If I can help put that in perspective. The population of Chesapeake, where I live, 242,634 people. People that I know, that I live, and they go to work, and they go... 242,000 people, 634. You'd have to kill that many people every single day for 300 days to amount to the number of abortions since Roe v. Wade here in our country. These are the national numbers that has happened here in the United States of America. But let's just get a little bit more honest. Let's talk locally. What about that? What's going on here? From 2003 to 2018, at least 117,074 children have lost their lives in Southampton Roads. I'll say it again. Since 2003 to 2018, that's recent, guys, 117,074 children lost their lives in Southampton Roads. In 2018 alone, we don't have the numbers for 2019, and of course we're still in 2020, but in 2018 alone, 5,398 lost their lives. That's, in perspective, that's 103 children killed every week. That is 14 every single day of the year. There's another way of looking at it, and you've probably heard this way. If you, you have five fingers, but if you just hold up three of them, unless you just hold up one, this is a helpful way to look at this. For every three babies born alive, one will die because of abortion. That is devastating. That is murder. We understand this truly is a crisis. This is murder. This is the shedding of innocent blood. What have these children done? Tell me. It is the shedding of innocent blood. These are devised wicked plans that result in unborn children being killed before they ever see the light of day. And it's not a foreign enemy propagating acts of terror. It's mothers and fathers doctors and nurses, government officials and political parties, all joining to shed the blood of innocent children inside the womb. I don't think I have to convince you that it's murder. I don't think I have to convince you and exhort you that human life is sacred. I think that you get that pretty simply. But I do think we need to listen to the prophet's church We need to listen to the prophets and hear their admonition for God's people. Jeremiah's words are not only for Israel. They are for God's people who understand the character of God. Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Jeremiah's words, Isaiah's words, verse 17 of chapter 1, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Or from the Proverbs, the call is still exactly the same, to speak up for the mute, those that cannot speak. To speak up for the mute, to open our mouths for the rights of those who are destitute, to judge righteously and defend the rights of the poor and needy. There really are two things on the table here. One we get. One is murder. The other one 
is that no one is taking care of the fatherless. No one is speaking up for the mute. If we continue to not work on this at all, we are turning a blind eye and no one is opening our mouths for the needy. It is a Christian's responsibility, I will say that again, responsibility to seek justice for murder. Obviously, we'd want to do that in our society in every way. But it is also for us to speak up and advocate for and protect the innocent from having their blood shed. This is what marks a Christian who will stand up for what God stands for. And Christians rightly understand that abortion is sinful and that we ought to stand up and speak out for those who cannot speak for themselves. There's like several practical things we could do from here. I mean, we ought to email or call our senators and congressmen when important legislation comes up. Guys, we can do that. We have an opportunity and we've been given to the, the gift of living in a republic, a de- democratic republic, where we have a say. As Christians, our responsibility is not only to our country, but to our God to do so. We can do that. We can make a few minutes to find out who our congressman is and write him. We have that opportunity. We ought to pray that God would bring justice for these unborn children. We ought to spend time on our knees together praying that God would push back the darkness and have the the killing of the innocent stopped. We should pray together and join together asking that the Lord would push that back. We ought to reach out to those who are hurting and tempted like these mothers to go through this type of an abortion and to show them that there is another way and to declare to them why it matters. You see, to them, if they do not know and love and trust God, there's no reason to stop an abortion. By the very act of showing love and understanding life, there's a reason that undergirds all that, and it's that God made life and that he cares about it, and it's valuable. And that mother and that father, their life is valuable too. It helps us proclaim the truth. We ought to help them provide resources, offer our own time and services so that we can show the love of Christ, both to this baby, but then also to the mother and the father and the people that are around the situation. Again, because what did they need? They need the love of Christ. I think one of the things that Toby DeBoss does best, who's the president of CPC, he understands that this is not just about physical life. This is about ultimate 40 billion year reality, eternal life. If we just are concerned about saving babies from, from, from being taken by abortion and don't care at all about their souls, we've missed it. And so we recognize as Christians that these things go hand in hand together. So it's not enough for us to be all about this justice part and not be concerned about true justice for their souls. We want them to know salvation. We want true justice to be done in Jesus Christ that they would trust in him. We ought to give of our resources to support ministries like CPC or other organizations who have made concerted effort to push back the abortion rate through all kinds of creative endeavors. These guys are thinking up all kinds of new things to try to get this understanding that this is life and push back in the darkness and say life matters. God says so. We ought to support and love them. We ought to volunteer and learn what other ways we can help them serve in our community this community specifically the fatherless and the needy. All these things, I'm sure there's many more, we ought to participate in. They ought to be our proper Christian response 
to those experiencing this injustice. But before we finish up today, I think there are a few loose ends when we come to this topic that we've just got to talk about. I've got three thoughts for us as we close out. First, brother and sister, be careful not to elevate this sin over other sins. Or conversely, this is where it hits home, okay? Be careful not to count your sin as less significant than that sin. If you remember that Proverbs 6 passage I started with, I only read the first verse to, I want you to listen to the whole thing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Anyone here ever struggle with pride? A haughty eye? Anyone ever create problems between other believers, whether it's your own selfishness or you're just sowing discord? Anyone ever withhold truth or maybe act in a deceptive way for your own gain? Be very careful not to make abortion more grievous sin than our own. But this leads to the second thought. In this room today, I know that statistically there are a few men and women who have been involved in abortion in some way or another. I hope that you can hear me clearly. There is no sin too big for the Lord to forgive through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you could do that's more heinous that Jesus Christ said, no, I'm not going to die for that. There is forgiveness in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't want to proclaim peace, but peace isn't in wiping it away and not talking about it. Peace is found when you confront this in Jesus Christ and submit to him and him alone. Turn to him and know that your past actions can truly be put away from you and you can find restoration in Christ. Stacy told me a story of uh, one of the orientation classes for volunteers they were having. And one woman came, she was about 62, he said. They all kind of telling their story, what's going on. And they got to her, and why are you here? And Well, uh, this year I'm 42 years um, post-abortive. I aborted my baby 42 years ago. And I haven't told my family up until last year. People hold that stuff. I know that. It may never come out, and it's obviously not something that we want to proclaim. I understand that. But to hold it and to keep it away as something that you must hold, and if you don't hold on to it, the church will reject you, or this is something that God can't handle, that's wicked. That's not true. Praise God that he died for sinners like me and you, and that there is true forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We are not anti-abortionists. What I mean by that is that we're not against the people who are doing the abortion. Uh, we are anti-abortion. We don't want to see the abortionists killed. We want to see less people killed. And we want them to be one to eternal life. I've heard it said, and I think it's the right attitude, that we pray grace for all who have participated in abortions. We want grace for them. But we also pray that the Lord would stop this wicked practice of abortion. So that's the second thing. Third, we started our time together by looking at the character of God. 
Deuteronomy 32, 4. Uh, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. Uh, I'm going to just throw out Psalm 89, 14. The psalmist says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. When we speak of justice in relation to abortion, we ask the question, man, what hope do we really have of changing anything? I mean, aren't, isn't the number already 61 million? Like, does that, does our, does our stance really matter at all? Like, if we're, if we're not that effectual, does it, does it matter? I can clearly tell you it does matter. Our proclamation of the sanctity of life and our efforts to promote justice for the oppressed are a testimony to the character of the God who is just. And it proclaims as we act this way that God will have justice and that we can be sure of that very thing. In this dark world, it shows the character of God and our devotion to obeying his word. He calls us to do this. These efforts declare that there is a God and that he does care and that justice will be served. The success then of our efforts, at least here on earth, do not change whether or not justice will be accomplished or not. Although we may think that we have failed, remember that is not the final word. It will not be. And in fact, it has not been already. Justice will be served regardless of our apparent success, perhaps not here and now, but there will be judgment. And this is the one where we've got both bad news and good news, right? For those who refuse to repent of their sin and refuse to trust Christ as king, they will experience eternal judgment, separation from God, and hell. But for those who trust Christ, the judgment that they have incurred, that they deserve, will be laid on someone else, a substitute. There is fortunately for us, an ultimate injustice. And you know what I'm talking about. Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless creator and sustainer of the world, was put to death by sinful men. The ultimate injustice. The beauty, the, the beauty though, is this ultimate injustice allowed for justice to be served in God's plan. This did not take him by surprise. We know that our Savior was slain from the foundations of the earth. This is his plan. This is his choice to redeem through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we recognize this ultimate and just act of Christ being slain by sinful men that Christ's church is to be saved from the wrath of God while he still remains the just one. This is glorious. This is incredible that God can both be just and the justifier to save wicked people like me and you who shook our face and acted unjustly and didn't stand up for justice. And yet, in Christ, we have access to the Father. We can be saved from our sin. We can know the true inheritance in Christ. We can be found in him. Justice will be served. It will be served but we have a chance to participate in the proclamation of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and the love and concern for those who suffer injustice. So let us do what he commands, and I'll finish with this last verse again. Let us open 
our mouths for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Let us open our mouths, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Let's pray together. God, we humbly come for your, before you as your body, recognizing, Lord, that we fall far short of justice. We fall short of anything that would be something that we could pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, look what we've done. And we cry out, Lord, would you be just? Would you answer to these 61 million children who have been killed in the womb? Or would you answer would you bring justice for them? We ask that you teach us to respond in justice and love to you and to our neighbor. We love you and ask you to continue to change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.